Welcome to Sundial. I'm Carlos Frias. Nancy Spielberg has a famous last name, but as a filmmaker, she's used it differently than her older brother, Hollywood director Steven Spielberg. Nancy has used the Spielberg name mostly behind the scenes. She produces movies that highlight stories of Israel and the Jewish diaspora. Her interest has been in producing documentaries, while her brother is focused on narrative feature films. Now she's helping promote a new movie she helped produce. The film, Close Circuit, tells the story of a terrorist attack in 2016 at a mall in Tel Aviv. And it does it in a gripping way, by relying on security camera footage throughout the mall, and it's narrated through interviews with survivors. The effect is overall haunting. Uh, the film from premieres this month at the Miami Jewish Film Festival, which runs January 12th through the 26th. The film by director Tal Inbar premieres just as the 2023 Oscar nominations are set to be announced later this month. And Nancy has an interest in that, too. She, con she consulted on her brother's most recent film, The Fablemans. It's a fictionalized version of their life growing up in Arizona. It's an early frontrunner for an Oscar nomination. The movie explores a devastating rift in the family and shows how movies can reveal truths hiding in plain sight. Nancy, welcome to Sundial. Thank you, Carlos. You know, what struck me about this movie, and I've had a chance to see them both, is that these two movies are telling truths in a very different way, each one in a very different way. Um, and I wanted to talk about how each one does that, sp specifically starting with, with Closed Circuit, which takes right. a really literal approach to it. Right, right. It, interesting that you drew that parallel because um, seeing things things through the lens is is that revelation in both cases. Of course, we're not going to give away the Fableman story, but sometimes the reality that we see through the lens is is quite shocking. And uh, with closed circuit, and even in in today's life, so much is caught on closed circuit camera that um, people, you you have this up close and almost personal experience with what you're watching. And if, God forbid it's a terror attack or violent attacks that's going on in the United States and everywhere, but it definitely is um, jarring yeah, to there, see it like that. There is this ominous approach because we are used to when we see closed circuit video, like exp looking for the thing that's going to happen. So like for yeah. the first 20 minutes, it's like it's this long delayed uh, period where you're holding your breath. And I got to say, it's really uh, it's really something I literally had to I had the luxury of seeing it at, uh, on a computer. So I, I literally paused it. I was like, I need to really catch my breath on this. Yeah. Yeah. I, you can imagine how it was in the editing room. <laughs> I kept watching it and stopping it because, um, well, personally, I was so moved by this project because I happened to be in Israel on that very day, June 8th, 2016. Oh my goodness. It was the day after my birthday and I was in Jerusalem with f best friends at a bustling restaurant celebrating. The place was full. You know, there are kids running around and plates clattering and just, you know, a, an incredible, wonderful atmosphere of people dining out and celebrating friends, family, birthdays. And I walked out of the restaurant and on the street, people were talking about this this horrific terror attack at a very busy restaurant in Tel Aviv, which is a 45 minute drive from where I was. Not that, you know, that I, it's the closest I ever want to get to a terror attack, but it just hit me that that could have been me. That could have been any of us anywhere, whether it's Tel Aviv or Paris or Pittsburgh or, you know, anywhere. And I think that's sort of what shook me is um, that, experience feeling sort of a little too close 
And what I thought was really remarkable is that you don't get into the movie doesn't get into scale. In other words, this many people were killed. Like it doesn't start with that. And like like this is the quote unquote biggest or what have you. It's just like this feeling that you're immersed in this area where the the terror can happen. It can surprise you anywhere. And that is the overall impression that you get. And that's and it's really frightening. It's really frightening. Yeah. And I also think when we start to uh, put it into numbers, people go, oh, that's not so bad. Well, you know what? It's bad. Every, it doesn't yeah. matter what the numbers are. It doesn't right. matter how many people are affected, because I think what this is, does is it makes it very human. It makes it more relatable, uh, dealing with the post-traumatic stress, dealing with, of course, I watch it and I think, what would I have done? And uh, it covers the three reactions to terror, which is fight, flight, or freeze. Yeah. And I always wonder what which would I be? And you, you know, see- of course I do that. I you know, we always put ourselves into situations when they are like in this case, you do feel a connection to the young girl whose father was killed or the man whose little son almost got killed. So yeah. Yeah, you can really you can put yourself and you can see the different perspectives on it. It's it's like I said, it's it's really powerful, and I, I would encourage folks to 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 sit with. Thank it. you. Um, so tell me about how you got involved with this film. Obviously, you had this connection with it, this connection with this event. Um, th- I read that it kind of started with like a you got cold called. Tell me how yes. you got involved. <laughs> I did. I do get cold called a lot, by the way, and that's you know one of the just uh what happens when your last name starts with this big s (laughs) (laughs) you know um but in this case i got uh a an email from a young woman that said you know forgive me for reaching out to you but i'm doing this project it's my first feature film and um you know she sent me her student film and Mm. i wanted and I was frozen. And, you know, sometimes I'm very polite when people send these things to me because I really don't want to dismiss somebody. Right. Not break their spirit. Their sure. Of course. Yeah. It's not it's not fair. Someone's put their heart and soul into something. You can't just, you know, not answer. But when I watched the student film that this was based on, I just said, call me. And we connected. It turns out I know her mother. And I was I was saying, well, here's where you should raise money. And I'm giving her like all this great advice, not thinking, oh, yes, I'm on this because I hesitate just for lack of time. But and I said, oh, and you have to go to this this woman and she's got a film fund. And and so then she goes, "Uh, I have to tell you something, Nancy, that's my mom. So she didn't even use the fact that I know her mom. Oh, that is so funny. Look at look at very. Yeah, you guys, you guys both not using not using uh, these these potential uh, levers, right? right? That's great. <laughs> well, by the way, I I name dropped a little. She knew, <laughs> no, she knew, she knew who I was. You know, she knew sort of the connection, not using me to get to Steve, but I didn't know her connection, and she she let the material speak for itself, and it was so powerful that it hooked me. That's amazing. The fact that it went from from film student. To something, uh, film uh, student film to something like this, which is uh, you know, yeah. really remarkable. I know, I know. I'm th- I'm thrilled that we're in the festival in Miami. That's like every filmmaker's dream is to be there because it's just such a great film film festival. I- I'm curious. Uh, t- tell me a little bit about um, you know. Obviously, a lot of folks are going to get a chance to see this. Um, there is there is some you do some interviewing or the filmmaker make does some interviewing with um, with survivors of it, and you guys pair like these. Um, 
these moments caught on on closed circuit camera with these survivors who are basically narrating it. It's it's a really interesting right. way to to see it, and and it's very powerful. What what was your reaction when you started seeing some of those interviews? Um, well, a lot of tears, a couple yeah. little chuckles because every once in a while there's a line that sort of breaks the tension, mm. and it's sort of how people process. I know personally, if I'm going through trauma, a lot of times I have to find something uh, silly or some comical piece just to bring that tension level down. But I think it's um, it helps because the camera footage is uh, a lot of activity. And maybe it's almost too much for your eyes because it's a busy restaurant and there's something going on here and there and this table and that table. And I think every single time I watched it, I kept focusing on different people in the same scene. And I, I watched a separate story each time. So it does help when you hear the survivors to then see their body in the footage and what they're doing and their action. Uh, it's, it's an easier way to just connect it because it is a little bit much to take in with the fast pace of the camera and the running and the screaming and, and all of that. Nancy, tell me a little bit about how you choose the movies that you want to back. I mean, yeah, you know, like you said, you know, you uh, people know, people have heard of your last name, uh, and <laughs> and you guys and and you and you seem to really focus on telling these these Jewish stories and st- stories of the diaspora, stories of Israel. Tell me a little right. bit about how you how you choose those stories. Well, you know, I I remember one time my brother saying that he chose Sugarland Express which was his first feature film, he was reading a newspaper and he read an article and he cut it out and he saved it. And it just hit him. Hmm. And I, the first film that I produced, you know, took the reins on, not that I was executive producing or just helping a little or consulting, was Above and Beyond. And it, it came from an email that somebody sent me where they sent me a copy of an obituary about an American in 1948 that smuggled planes out of the U.S. and got his friends to volunteer and how these great American World War II vets, pilots, sort of crazy guys, flew these crappy airplanes to Israel and flew and fought in Israel's War of Independence to help this country that was just becoming a state and was attacked by every surrounding army. And it it just grabbed me. So my initial, what I call my kishki reaction, you know, the guts, Um, are sometimes how I choose things. It's not that I am looking in one particular direction. I know where my my interests and passions lie. Of course, I love puppy dogs, and I haven't made a film about puppy dogs either. But um, there's this sort of drive of the story connected with me. Uh, I think now there's a a lot of Holocaust topic coming out. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of anti-Semitism. So, of course, that's got my attention. It should have all of our attention of of the stories that we need to tell mostly at a time when there's so many deniers and there's so many stories that people don't know about that were not necessarily covered in the past. Um, so it's sort of like that. And so the key I is, am interested. If, if you want to get, if you want to get uh, Nancy Spielberg's attention, uh, send her an email <laughs> and you might, and who knows, you might, <laughs> you might get backing for a movie, which is really great. <laughs> Well, you know, I, by the way, I raise the money. It's not like I'm, I'm <laughs> opening the bank account. I, I, I'm the, schnor- I call myself the schnorrer, you know, like I go and I go, Hey, I've got this great movie. You're interested in supporting it. And they're not for profit films. You know, the documentary world is very pure like that. It's, or the world I'm working in is really 
there's a message, there's a story. We want to share it. We want to educate or inspire. So they are, you know, we, we get donations and we walk around and we spend the money making the film. Then we go raise more money. So, um, yeah, it's hard work. And just because my name is Spielberg does not mean that the money is coming to me like that. You know, I, I, I break a sweat like everybody <laughs> else should. <laughs> I want to remind folks we're speaking with Nancy Spielberg, uh, who has helped produce a new movie um, that is playing at the at the Miami Jewish Film Festival. It's titled Closed Circuit. And if her name sounds familiar, it's because uh, her brother is Steven Spielberg. Uh, if you missed any part of this conversation, you can catch it on our podcast app. Uh, Nancy, tell me a little, bit, a little bit about how you got interested in movies yourself. Obviously, you're... We, we get to see a little glimpse of a fictionalized version of your family growing up in a, in a movie your brother uh, released late last year, The Fablemans. Right. Tell me about how right. you came to movie making. Well, you know, it wasn't my intention, though mm. we all grew up making movies. And we, you know, my brother was holding the camera and we were cast and crew. And oh, we that did is whatever so funny. He said. <laughs> yeah, that was it. Like every scene in The Fablemans of the torture scenes and pulling out, pretending to pull out teeth and everything. All that happened, locking us in closets with skeletons. That so happened. I have, I have battle scars from that. But um, like, I hate the dentist now. Oh but my god! <laughs> and there's you're mentioning this great scene where, it, like, I want to say the the character of your is it your mom or dad walks in on like, at like hit you know somebody tearing a tooth out of a kid's head yeah, and my it's mom, all, right? <laughs> and it's everybody's horrified. Yeah, so you hearing were, a child a curdling scream and running and then seeing what they think is blood and it's ketchup. Um, yeah, that that made my mother a little gray probably a few times. So I think that we all grew up very comfortable around the camera, whether it was my dad who who took boring family movies and then Steve took the camera from him or making films growing up in Arizona because there was nothing else to do. And and then just being a storyteller. And I used to love writing stories. I That was what I thought I was going to do. Um, and probably... After Schindler's List, um, so many people came to me with projects and I started to sort of just help and guide and mostly when they were Holocaust stories and things I was very sensitive to. And that was probably when I got more involved in starting to executive produce or consult, help somebody rewrite their treatments or their stories. And, And then really above and beyond, and this isn't that long ago, it was 2011, when uh, that was the first time that I just went, you know, just full force into it. I was scared, um, scared. Yeah. I was scared just because my name is Spielberg doesn't mean I know everything. But hmm. I think I was smart enough to surround myself with incredible collaborative filmmakers like Roberta Grossman and Sophie Sartain and, and Chris Callister, our editor. And also I got involved in more projects with them. So I was a little bit in school at the same time that I was producing. That's, but a, that's I think so that's interesting just, that you really had yeah. a moment where you thought, uh, or really it took you to 2011 to, to really become involved in movies and kind of trust yourself. What what was that process like? Because like you said, the, the name Spielberg, like I said, it comes with a big S on your chest, right, I guess? Yeah. It was totally intimidating, which is why I didn't do it for so many years, because as much as I love my storytelling and writing, um, I just thought I'm I'm doomed for failure because I'm going to be held up to his standards. And there's just not that many Steven Spielbergs in the world. And 
it's always hard to um, fight the, well, you know, when people think, oh, it's nepotism or that person got a job because their father or their sister, brother, whatever. And I'm a little bit of an independent type. Hmm. I didn't want, um, I didn't want to do that. And I also wanted to make sure this was done on my own. So I, you know, I didn't ask my, the only thing I said to my brother when I decided to do this, because I was, it was like, it was get, just drop this fear cloak this fear of failing publicly, just let it go. And if you've got the passion, you're going to make it happen. So I just wanted to ask my brother one question, which was, I wanted to make sure that in his pipeline, he was not coming out with the same story. Because <laughs> I thought the last thing I need is to be box office or something against him in the same topic. And he was like, so excited that I was doing this and, and said, it's such a great idea. And and he's he's so proud. So that's that's sort of cool. Well, yeah. What were those conversations like? Because it's interesting to have, a, you know, your brother as a mentor, you know, I guess in any kind of field. But to, what were those conversations like where he encouraged you to, to kind of go for it? He, he, they were wonderful because besides the fact he said, you know, you have my bracha, which means my blessing, <laughs> um, although I didn't need it because, you know, I don't really need it, but <laughs> it was good. And then he would call me and say, I've got this incredible uh, composer for your score. I went, mm, I got somebody already. And he was like <laughs> a little surprised. Like, why wasn't I jumping? And a couple times that happened, not because I was ignoring him, but I sort of, I, you know, I knew enough people in Hollywood in some ways to gently ask favors without being that little kid sister. Hmm. Like I needed someone to do the, um, computer-generated images of flying sequences in Above and Beyond. And if they're done poorly, they look like a crappy video game when you can tell it's really fake. So I wanted George Lucas's company, Industrial Light Magic, to do it, but it was, you know, the big ticket. And But I knew the head of Lucasfilms, and I emailed her and said, I'm doing this film. It's a not-for-profit. We really don't have any money. <laughs> and she said, we do pro bono work. So all of a sudden... I'm playing it in the big league. Um, so it's sort of incredible that that happened and that I found there are sources like that. And Hans Zimmer's company had a, a young composer that, the, and they had faith in the story. And they said, you know, we'll cut you a deal. <laughs> so in any case, um, when my brother was checking in with me and, you know, when he saw the trailer, he said, you made me cry. And I went, Steve, you made me cry lots of times, so it's good. I'm getting back at you for locking me in the closet. Um, oh, so what it was a good! Story. It was it was really wonderful. <laughs> what a what a great moment of uh, of reciprocity there. Uh, we're, yeah, right. We're speaking with Nancy Spielberg. Nancy, we're going to take a little break, but we want to come back and talk with you uh, more about filmmaking, about the film, and uh, here your mom had a restaurant in L.A. So we'll we'll get into that uh, when we come back from the break. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Carlos Frias, and we're talking with the filmmaker Nancy Spielberg. Uh, she produces movies that highlight the stories of Israel and the Jewish diaspora. She has a new movie coming out at the Miami Jewish Film Festival called Closed Circuit. And if her name sounds familiar, that's because her brother is Steven Spielberg. Uh, Nancy, we were talking a little bit about how you got into filmmaking. And like you told us about those stories about being your, your brother's first cast and crew. Uh, how much do you th how much do you think that shaped your interest to 
to want to stay in that, you know, kind of quote unquote family business? Um, I think it was sort of a, a organic, natural segue. And again, like I said, I wasn't originally planning on filmmaking, but mm-hmm. I loved the storytelling aspect. And part of that came from growing up with my parents. My my mother was this vivacious, energetic person that nothing was black and white. Like mm-hmm. if she would come home from a grocery store with an adventure, it was an adventure. It wasn't just going to the grocery store. So I think that, you know, we sort of lived with bright colors and a lot of adjectives and a lot of spice in our life. And um, it's just the way that we tell our stories and film is the way to go. We are a visual society. It's the only way to reach the younger people in any case, because they don't really read books anymore. And um, as far as educational tools, that was really what I loved is that I think I'm making films. I mean, my hope is I'm making films that can reach younger audiences and preserve histories and inspire, inspire change, good change. Well, what did you learn about, you mentioned your mom being this vivacious personality, personality. What did you learn about her in how to capture people's attention? Because that sounds like, you know, so much of, of what you do in, in movies is capture people's attention. What are some of those stories about the way that your mom uh, kind of, uh, kind of was was more iridescent than than other moms might have been she she was iridescent a good word we we also called her peter pan or tinkerbell because really <laughs> everywhere she went the sparks flew and people who know her part of it is being very open very generous and very honest um i i i do think that people connect more when they when they see that sincerity and Mm -hmm. she was just so natural and she was so comfortable with herself and her style, which was not the normal style, instead of trying so hard to fit into whatever the norm was, she really bucked the norm, you know, and she would refuse to go to like a PTA meeting. God forbid my mother would be (laughs) a joiner. She was not the typical anything and she loved being unique. Well, I, I, I think that helped us. I read that, that uh, she opened, was it L.A.'s really first kosher restaurant, like in the 70s, late 70s? Yeah, just about. There was like a pizza shop, but there wasn't any really fine dining. She opened the Milky Way in 1977. She had no prior experience uh, outside of being a great cook herself um, to run a restaurant. But they wanted to do something where everybody in the Jewish community and not Jewish community, everybody could eat there. And she started with my stepfather, the Milky Way, which even though my mom passed away five years ago, we still, we we keep it open. We renovated it. We refresh the menu. I'm sort of the family member that oversees it because my brother doesn't have time. I don't know why. And my other two <laughs> sisters love that, that I'm the worker bee. Uh, so, yeah. and she, that was her stage. She literally would, sachet up and down the aisle and sit down she'd push people over in the booth to to nudge their their them over so she could put her tushy down (laughs) and she would say tell me who you are tell me about yourself and she would just get to know people and give them great advice unique advice not the typical jewish mommy stuff and people just never forget her they 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 still tell me stories about her 
That that's so interesting that you're still involved in the restaurant today, even after her passing. I'm sorry to to hear about that. Um, yeah. Can you, what is that like for you now to be both this behind the scenes producer and uh, and and also running a restaurant? Well, thankfully, we have a consultant, uh, Gene Hagen, and a great executive chef, Phil Castell, there. So nobody calls me to say, Nancy, can you come in and wash dishes tonight? <laughs> because the dishwasher didn't show up. And I'm in New York, and the restaurant's in L.A. So, um, But what I love is that we as a family decided to keep it open to honor her memory mm. and to share her adorableness with the world. And, of course, Fableman's takes it to a whole new level uh, with that film. But when you go in the restaurant, there are pictures of her everywhere. Some of her signature dishes, her favorite things, her favorite sayings. Like it was always like seven o'clock was wine time. So we used to ring a bell at seven o'clock and there was wine on the table. Um, <laughs> and we have even a little home movie in the corner of her dancing and prancing and camping trips everything that she, what she was so it is it is in respect in her honor um to all my parents and i think and the food's great and <laughs> i think she's smiling down because What's, she loved that place what was your what was her one of her best dishes something that that's at the restaurant that you love well even though it sounds like typical jewish food the potato latkes are incredible as are the blintzes and we just came off of Hanukkah, of course. So everybody was like screaming, loving the potato latkes because they're sort of crispy and grated, not mushy. Oh, you're making um, me so hungry I, right now because you can't I, I mean, a, a great too. potato latke. Oh my god! You like it? Are you an <laughs> apple? Are you an applesauce apple or are you applesauce or sour cream? What is your? They're both. I'm sorry, both. <laughs> <laughs> and and my mom also she loves spicy food, so we had to to stop her hand a few times because I think that a few people would break out sweating at the table if there were too much jalapenos in the guacamole or pepper <laughs> in the fish chowder, you know. So, And also because we didn't grow up kosher, when we're making these kosher dishes, they taste very, like our fish chowder tastes like clam chowder. And we know because we've been on both sides of the aisle. So, Oh, that's so interesting that you guys didn't grow up kosher, but the restaurant is kosher. That That's an yeah, interesting move. Yeah, it, it was important for when we moved out to L.A., that they sort of wanted to do something the Jewish community was building. We grew up with a lot of anti-Semitism, and I think finding community was sort of a comfort, and then being an integral part of community, we suddenly realized how important that is, that uh, being a part of... I hear my mother, the non-joiner, was suddenly leading the pack, and that was maybe from the years of sort of being the odd, the odd bird out that... Uh, she felt the comfort of a support of a community. And I think it did help having kosher food, which anybody can eat, but then everybody can eat that, not just the people, you know, that uh, keep kosher. It's open sure. for everybody. And and obviously this seemed like an interesting way for her to fight this anti-Semitism that you remember growing up with that, that she remembers talking about. Is there a story that yes. stands out for you when you when you were growing up? that you remember oh yeah well there are a few you but uh, when i was the when i was young and didn't understand anything about this i remember that the neighbors next door to us in phoenix because i know in fablemans we talk about the anti-semitism in northern california but in phoenix 
I was a little kid. I was five, six years old. And the neighbors used to stand on their side of the lawn. We didn't have a fence between us singing the Spielbergs are dirty Jews over and over again. Oh my God. And then they would steal our toys. And we were like, I just didn't understand why, what made us dirty Jews. We weren't even obvious Jews. It wasn't like, you know, I mean, our house didn't have Christmas lights. So we were obvious in that way. We, we stood out in, in our darkness, but um, it was, it was hard. It was hard because that was my first uh, feeling of not being accepted for something I didn't understand. And it also was in school like that. And that didn't, that stuck, that stuck for a very long time. So but I it, think what it it made us made me maybe later several years later become a little bit more of a proud Jew hmm. when I did find that it was this uh, this realization that you could you could stand as as community so to speak like if if you have somebody standing next to you it makes it easier to to resist some of those things I would imagine yeah it is it is easier it's hard to be uh, the lonely you know the one. And it's much easier to find the camaraderie, find similar stories. You know, I, I ended up going to a Jewish school when I was in sixth grade and the kids there had similar experiences than I did. So, you know, we had someone we could share things with and um, it, it, it helped. It did help. Nancy, how did that influence your filmmaking and your, and your, and your support of different films? Because I know that uh, like this, this film that, uh, that is debuting at the Miami Film uh, Miami Jewish Film Festival, uh, Closed Circuit, uh, deals with issues of anti-Semitism. How did how did that anti-Semitism that you grew up with um, sh- kind of shape you and your and your work now? Well, I think it's shaped it and shaping it still. Uh, after Schindler's List, and I grew up not knowing really anything about the Holocaust. My brother knew some because my grandmother had taught uh, survivors who were in Cincinnati, where he was born. Um, English and he saw survivors and mm-hmm. tattoos and he understood more. I'm the youngest. There's nine years. There's four of us. There's nine years between us. Wow. When we moved to Arizona, nobody bothered to tell me anything. <laughs> and it's not like it's not like Miami or New York where your your interaction with survivors is commonplace. I never even knew or heard of a survivor in Arizona, in Phoenix, Arizona, growing up. So I had no exposure until before my brother did Schindler's List, I read the book. And then after he filmed and then started working on gathering the testimonies, I learned more and more. And I think that is what pushed me uh, more into that direction. It's not everything. Plus, People kept sending me stories for my brother, uh, scripts of more Holocaust stories to make into film. And my brother was like, you know, I'm, I did Schindler's List. I'm doing other things. And so then they would say, OK, Nancy, you do it. And I'm like, well, <laughs> uh, uh, you know. but I did segue into that. And I think Roberta Grossman was also very helpful because she was working on she was in uh, pre-production on Who Will Write Our History, which is the story of a secret group in the Warsaw Ghetto that saw the writing on the wall, and they wrote diaries and 30,000 pages of documents of what the Nazis were doing and buried all these documents in milk cans, hoping that somebody would find them and the Nazis wouldn't be telling the story, but the, the, the war and the Holocaust would be told from the Jewish perspective. So I learned 
so much more in the making of that and in reading that book. So it's, again, pushed me in that direction. And with all the rise in anti-Semitism these days, how can any of us ignore it? I mean, it doesn't matter Jewish or not Jewish. It's all over. Everybody's now fighting anti-Semitism. Thank, when I say everybody, I mean, it's not everybody, but there is a much stronger movement because it's shocking uh, how, how prevalent it is. Nancy, uh, it seems like you and your brother kind of took these two bookends, so to speak, two ways to tell these stories. And and uh, I'm gonna take I want to take a little break here, but I'll, I want to come back and talk with how you influenced uh, his new film uh, coming up. And uh, so we're gonna take a little break, and we'll be back with Nancy Spielberg, filmmaker, in just a couple minutes. Hi, you're listening to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Carlos Frias. Let's continue our conversation with Nancy Spielberg. Uh, she's a documentary filmmaker and, uh, with a new film coming to the Miami Jewish Film Festival titled Closed Circuit, and uh, her brother is Steven Spielberg. And re- recently, Steven Spielberg uh, had a movie that uh, has got Oscar buzz. It's titled The Fablemans. It's uh, loosely based on their lives growing up. And Nancy, he asked you to consult on the movie, you you and your brothers, uh, you and your sisters. Right, right. Well, you know, I think he was very nervous how we would react. He's oh. got three younger sisters. Um, and although it is the story also of his evolution into movie making, it's still a story that involves all of us. So during COVID, he called me. And I remember I was in the grocery store um, and he's not a phone talker. So I was like, okay, who died? Oh, boy. <laughs> not really. Anyway, he's like, no, no, no. Um, but you know, he said, and I'd noticed that he had been texting me a lot with photos and clips of old home movies. I was like, boy, Steve's really, he's at home with COVID like the rest of us are very nostalgic. He's pulling out all the old movies. So I didn't know that he and Tony had started writing this and he said, I want to do this and I want to know if you're okay with it. And I want to ask Sue and Anne also. And uh, he said, I'm going to send you the draft of the script. And so he did. He sent it to each of us. And we all were hysterical crying and unanimously saying, yes, yes, yes. Tell the story. Because the story is told so beautifully. And it's so so moving with authenticity. And um, there are no villains in this story. Hmm. Uh, so I think that, uh, and then he said, okay, now I need help. I don't know what mom wore. I don't know what did we eat. What, what was her favorite concert, her piano, uh, her concerts that she liked, her favorite composers. Help me build this. Can you work with designers? Can you work with costume? Can you work with food? Can you work with music? Can you, you know, and we would sit and, go through hours of discussions of everything and sharing photos and even what perfume my mother wore. We really built out, fleshed out the characters. And then with Tony Kushner, as we were filming, we were each on the set. Tony would ask me questions. He would each, he asked each sister different questions and probably was testing to see if he was going to get the same answers. But like every once in a while we would come up and go, oh yeah, like, you know, I said to Tony, I said, oh, my mother used to always say guilt is the wa- is a wasted emotion. Hmm. And Tony would say, I have to put that in the script. Oh, so, yeah, I remember so, that that line. Yeah. yeah. There w- was so much that was not in the script that we told them because, you know, our stories, our, our families are rich and layered and 
and emotional, but it was such an incredible experience watching going home. It was like going home. It was like being a kid again. It was like bringing our parents back from the dead. And we lost my dad two years ago at 103. Oh, wow. So, um, yeah. And my stepfather, you know, was 20 something years ago. So these are three people that were so, so important in our lives, in our childhood and informing us as as adults, if we, I don't know if you want to call us all acting as adults, but yeah. so yeah, it was you got really, to live your, you got to live your childhood again in a way. Oh man, it was so cool. At one point, I was watching Steve film, and he took a break. He goes, "Come on, let's go to my room." And we <laughs> went into, and I was like, I, you know, and I'm because I was so much younger, he never let me in his room because I he thought I would break his toys. <laughs> so we went into his room, and there's the skeleton, and there's the train, and there, like all the toys that we really grew up with. They went out and got, they actually went out and bought turquoise toilet paper from the 19, early 1960s. They found it on eBay. So they, they made our turquoise bathroom. I don't know if you remember, but you're probably too young. They, they used to have colored toilet paper well, before I'm, that was. I'm 47 <laughs> and my little abuelita used to have colored toilet paper in the, in the, even in the early 80s. So late 70s, right. early 80s. So I do remember that. Right. So they just said, we were walking around the set, they go, please don't touch the toilet paper, it's crumbling. Um, <laughs> so, and and the paintings on the walls, when my mom is, is, my mom, Mitzi, is playing piano in one of the scenes, the paintings on the walls are the paintings that were on the walls when we grew up, and they were the paintings my mother painted. She was also a painter. Oh, amazing. And, you actually used the paintings that you had in your family yeah. to, to decorate the oh, set. Yeah. We, and w- then my sisters and I started fighting over after the movie's done, we want this, we want that. You know, We wanted my one of my chatty Kathy and we wanted a certain set of, of coffee mugs my mother always had from the time we could remember. So Oh, never uh, never yeah. has a never has a cast fought over uh, pr- props like after this movie, I would guess. <laughs> I it's true. We really divvied up. The sisters almost, you know, came to tearing hair out. Like, <laughs> no, I get that. <laughs> Nancy, how you know, did, you always revert back to your childhood uh, relationships. So I, that's <laughs> interesting. You mentioned because I'm I'm curious, Nancy. Like, how did it affect? How did examining your life in this way really change or affect the way that you look back on your childhood, or did it? Oh, it definitely did. First of all, it's made us, we four siblings, so much closer. Um, I've said this, and I I feel it your parents are your rocks and when they're both gone you're untethered and it's you know and i think that's when siblings drift many times they have their own children they have their grandchildren it's okay to talk once a year well we all dreaded that time because we we were close but this has cemented us this has tied a a umbilical cord around all of us and we are in a huddle we are on a sibling, a Spielberg sibling huddle, and every we're texting all the time, every single day together. We're sharing things, we share our memories. Because these are the people that carry your, a lot. they carry your stories. These these are the folks yes. who, who carry your stories. Yes, because you know if you think about it, you have one piece of your memories, and so many times you need the other pieces filled in. And sometimes they're different. Like, you know, you'll talk to siblings, they'll say, I don't know what household that person grew up in, but that's not the way I remember it. <laughs> but we all have so much common. There's a couple of areas, a couple blips 
where we disagree, but they're so minor. And for the most part, it has, yes, it has solidified our memories, um, whatever. And it's so funny because I said, you know, I'm not sure I remember like that, but from now on, that's how I'm going to remember it. So my reality has changed as the baby because many times I was told about some things in the New Jersey home. I was six months old. I, I never stepped foot in the, where the, the film starts. So I almost felt like I was stepping into my childhood where I have absolutely no real recollection because I was six months old. I only know it from photos and stories being told to me. Wow. It's so like stepping that, into a museum in that way. Yeah, it was crazy. So yeah, I'm, it's, we're all still in this moment of sort of disbelief and uh, we're all warm and cuddly and sent over sentimental and we're crying a lot. Was this, was this movie the first time that all of you really worked together in this kind of consulting role or had you guys done this over the years? No, this is really the most. I mean, there's been times where we were on the sets and Steve would all, you know, ask advice. He'd, t- he'd shoot a scene and they'd say, what do you think? And we'd go, huh? And he'd redo it. But we never took a formal role. He used to involve my dad a lot. Uh, he'd give my dad two scripts and say, dad, which one should I do? Bridge of Spies or The Post? And my dad said, Bridge of Spies, because my dad related to that. He was behind the Iron Curtain in the 1960s and everyone we'd love to be on set because it sort of just makes you feel a part of it but this is the first time my sister annie's also a screenwriter so she wrote the movie big with tom hanks oh wow and not a small movie yeah. no no also a goodie right and but what a lovely moment because i mean I, I think sometimes when you get to this point now is when a, a lot of folks especially you know big name creative folks they write their book, so to speak. But this this movie right. feels like it's the memoir. Yeah, though there could be a sequel, you know. I mean, what if, where I don't want to say anything for those that didn't see it. I don't want to be a spoiler, but I think there's a part two. Steve's not big into sequels. He's, he's really not. Like, And if you do it right the first time, sometimes you just don't want to go back and tinker with it because sometimes you just got to move on. And so he's not thinking about it. I. Well, maybe we'll do that one. <laughs> That'll be my film. <laughs> and that that's interesting that that now this has kind of opened a door for you to to create to use your own vision to create films. What Yes, it, in many ways, but I think the doc world is what I like right now even though um you know, documentary filmmakers don't make money, so you don't really do it for that. If you want to make money, you're doing something else. Go sell lemonade. But <laughs> you feel like you're making a difference, possibly, um, and mostly in preserving stories. I think that is the cash that we need to create to pass on to the next generations. Well, it reminds me of that time where, you know, you were talking about building community when you're living in Arizona and you're surrounded by anti-Semitism and you're trying to create this connection. It seems like that's kind of what you're trying to do by supporting some of these documentary ideas. Yes, it is. It is. And and because the there are so many, so many stories, as I said before, um, it's just trying to figure out which ones you, you know, which ones grab you first. Um, it doesn't mean I wouldn't do feature films. You know, Above and Beyond was um, uh, DreamWorks actually bought the uh, license. I mean, they wanted to develop it for a feature film. It is tough to get Hollywood behind some films where Israel's the topic because it's such a hot topic. And, uh, you know, 
the film industry is about box office first and the documentary world you don't have to do that I, I it's of course everybody wants to make money but someone's not nixing your idea because they're having someone run the numbers and they say that's not a good box office right so and that's a shame I'm curious we, we were talking earlier earlier about when you're recreating these you know trying to come at a truth right and you, and you guys telling stories in different ways how did you guys handle when there were uh disagreements and memories like how did you how did you do that for movies well first of all if you're talking about fableman steve won <laughs> <laughs> no question steven steven tony won because they're allowed to take creative license in a in a something like that i uh, and the filmmakers i work with we are so much more serious that we have to get it right, right. and when you're talking about people telling stories for memory you will find uh differences there's um a book called light of days which is about resistance and most about women resistance and and the woman who wrote it i said what happened when you had people telling you different versions of the same story she said i asked more and more people and until oh. i got the consensus of this is the general view then you know because we take it as if we are creating historical documents historical works and i don't want to tell the story wrong uh, i there were people i didn't put into some films when i saw that their memory was and even if they were really great for the film but if their memory was faulty that's a huge responsibility to take to put something in there that that may be inaccurate of course somebody's always going to call you out and say that's not the way it happened because again like the fablements people sort of have their own verd you know version of every story right and and there is there's this element of uh of memory and truth right like uh and and what you're doing is very much but uh, it's closer to journalism where you're really trying to get at trying to get at fact and then using that to tell this bit you know this truthful story yes it is i guess it is um, what do you think when you when you the film that that you are um, that you helped produced uh, closed circuit which is premiering at the uh, Miami Jewish Film Festival uh, what do you hope that folks walk away with after seeing that movie several things first of all um, understanding post-traumatic stress this is not necessarily just a story that took place in Israel these are victims that could be anywhere. And I think that more now than ever, we need to understand what terror does. Um, I think it does. So it's that it's the person it's understanding that it's also understanding. Uh, I, I, I don't want to politicize this. And of course, anything that has to do with Israel, somebody's going to politicize. And they already someone said to me, why aren't you showing the Palestinian perspective? And yes, we have Palestinians in the film that were almost killed. And they were victims just like everybody else. But this was a story about the person, not necessarily the politics. But uh, people do talk about gun violence, not necessarily in Israel um, in the same way, because it's a whole different society of people that are serving in the military and have licenses. But what's happening in this country, and I'm not even touching on that, but it just makes everybody think about all of this. And maybe it sadly will make us a little bit more aware of our surroundings and understand that uh, this can happen anywhere. That's, you know, not the, a happy thought, but um, being prepared of 
what would you do and, if and, you were in a terror attack? And addressing these some of these issues of anti-Semitism head on. Uh, we've been speaking with Nancy Spielberg. She produced a new documentary film premiering at the Miami Jewish Film Festival. Uh, the event is January 15th. Uh, she will be there along with the director of the film, Closed Circuit, for a QA. and uh, You can find... Uh, more information on our website at WLRN or on our social media at WLRN Sundial. Nancy Spielberg, thank you so much for making the time for us. Thank you very much. This was fun. I can't wait to come to Miami. We're looking forward to it. <laughs> and that's Sundial for Thursday, January 5th. Leslie Ovalle Atkinson is our lead producer. Elisa Baena is our producer and social media editor. Our engagement editor is Katie Lepre-Cohen. Our digital editor is... Mateos Sanchez. Katie Munoz is our interim managing editor, and our senior news editor is Jessica Bakeman. Peter J. Mertz is WLRN's vice president of radio and Sundial's engineer. If you like that theme music, uh, that's the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo at gopalo.com. You can download a podcast of this program. Just search for WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. Coming up next week on the program, Jermaine Barnes's sculptures are a love letter to Miami using vibrant designs to tell the stories of the African diaspora and honor the communities that built Miami. His work has been displayed at the Miami, at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City, and it's currently at the Miami Design District. I'm Carlos Frias, thanks for listening. Public Media.